All right. Welcome to Debatable. I'm Dominique Foxworth. That's David Dennis Jr. And we stayed up. Well, not as long as we had to because the Warriors ended it early for us. Thanks, Golden State. You happy, David? You feel better? Well, you well are you happy because uh, are you happy because if the Warriors were going down zero two, I would have not shown up, and you'd have to carry this thing by yourself. So, yeah, glad we're yeah I appreciate it. Thank you. <laughs> glad we're doing a show together tonight. Making my night earlier and my job easier. Uh, speaking of making my job easier, Alabaster. Okay, guys. So yeah, I'm in a good mood tonight. You really yeah. are. Mm-hmm. Um, it's the war. It's a better place than the Warriors win. I think you know. <laughs> Uh, yeah, everyone's in a better mood except for me. But I have to ask this question. I'm forced to. After two games, does it just feel like the Warriors are the better team in this series? Mm. Absolutely. Mm. I mean, yeah. <laughs> I, and LeBron wasted a, a vintage LeBron half. Like, we're going to need that half at some point, King James. And you wasted it in a game that we all kind of knew you were going to lose. Like, it's <laughs> it's not likely that you're going to get the sweep I, I, away from home like the Kings did it, but they were home. Um, and, yeah, the Warriors, even in the game that they lost, they were uh, trailing by, what, was it 15 points with, like, five minutes left? And they mm-hmm. closed the gap in no time with that uh, lineup of death with Draymond. And then we saw – for much of this game, they had Draymond at the five, and who knew that the answer to AD was little old Draymond being annoying and feisty. So, yeah, it does feel like they just got more weapons, more uh, more options offensively and defensively. So it does feel like – and maybe I'm just overreacting as, as is uh, the tradition in NBA playoffs, overreact after every single game. But it didn't even feel like the Lakers were that much better after game one. Yeah, it, it seemed like the Lakers uh, game one was about the Lakers having rest and the Warriors being tired and the Warriors just trying to. And I, it felt like a game where Steve Kerr was just trying to steal one, even though they were at home. And now the Warriors have settled into their game plan. We've seen them do this so many times where they'll lose a game. But in the fourth quarter, they find they stumble onto something that feels sustainable. And that's what happened in game one. They stumbled on the small lineup that kept AD a little bit out the paint that made people run around, and then they stuck with the rest of the game. And Steve Kerr, the maniacal genius, starting Jermichael Green and, you know, really caused problems. He was wide open, uh, you know, for most of his threes, and he was nailing them. And, you know, I think I don't think Draymond is the answer to AD. I think AD doing this thing where he looks unstoppable and then disappearing 48 hours later is the answer to AD because nobody thought this dude was going to come back and score 40 again, which is an indictment of a lot of the stuff that he does most of his career. Yeah. Um. So, I mean, Looney was six, supposedly. Maybe, maybe he was, maybe he wasn't. Maybe this was a mastermind way to save face for Looney and uh, use a smaller lineup that had more shooting to challenge AD. Either way, it doesn't matter. Um. I don't know. Like, I get your point. You're right. AD from game to game uh, is just not a consistently dominant force, but I feel like that's discrediting what Draymond Green – I feel like Draymond Green is the definition of it doesn't show up in the box score. Like, it was so many things, so many tip balls, so many rebounds that he didn't get but he made possible for other people to get. So many, like, wild, wide base, high post positions that he forced AD into just because – 
He's Draymond Green, and he's that type of guy that those type of things never show up in the stat seat. He made AD uncomfortable, and uh, and you're not going to be able to quantify that necessarily. Draymond, I'm sure, hopes that somebody is going to quantify it as his contract <laughs> comes close to expiration. But uh, he certainly is showing his value. Much like last year, it seemed like that team was struggling mm-hmm. in the finals until Draymond showed up, and he is the key to this. And uh, I, I don't condone punching people in the face, but if somebody got a lot of money that you thought you deserved, <laughs> maybe you <laughs> might want to punch him in the face too. But yeah, I, yeah. at the same time, though, if you're Anthony Davis and you're supposed to be the best player, give me the ball at the elbow and I'm going to score on the on the best defender, you know, best defensive player in the world. I'm just going to do it. And yeah. I don't care, like, I don't care how uncomfortable or whatever. On the other side, you have a play, you have a player in Stephen Curry who is getting trailed around the court. Uh, and you know, they're making it his life incredibly difficult. And he's finding ways to impact the game. You know, not a lot of points, a lot of assists, and he's finding ways to work with that discomfort. Anthony Davis, you have to do that. You have to like look Draymond Green in the eye and say, I don't care how great of a defender you are. Meet me in the post, and I'm going to score all the points and carry this team. And I, there was really no way the Lakers were going to win this game tonight. But at least you can go down and you know swing in with 30 points and say that I'm still going to score and and at least put some fear in this team when you're going back to the to to Los Angeles. Now they feel like you know they know that you're, that if, even if you score 40 in Game Three, what are you going to do in Game Four? Yeah, I mean that's the difference between a, a perimeter player or a wing player and a post player. And I don't know in the history of basketball that I can think of a post player that has been that type of player where you're like, hey, just give me the ball anywhere on the floor. I'm gonna take it in my own hands and score. And especially in the modern NBA where like we just do away with post possessions because they're inefficient unless LeBron James is is in the post. So, like, it's hard. I, I think in um, AD's defense, if Draymond, and he shouldn't let himself get pushed way out uh, to the elbow or pushed way out to uh, the three-point line, but if that's where he's getting his catches, it's hard for him to run around like Steph Curry and create uh, defensive uh, conflicts to create open passes. So, I don't know. I, I I think Draymond should be more aggressive and should get in the paint, but... I don't know. Anyway, it seems like Alabaster, 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 Alabaster. I'm tired. Hey. Leave me alone. Alabaster <laughs> has the interjection. What you got? It's not even I, two I, in the morning yet. Come on. <laughs> I would like to say that uh, centers have won the last five MVPs. So most players still do have some value. It's in not the that they I mean, I mean, you, you love to take my words and make me feel like I'm wrong. So you're calling Giannis the center. And also, like, the point that I'm making is that's what we're accustomed to seeing wing players do. Like, give me the ball, get out the way. It's not something that we see all the time where we're like, hey, just give this guy the ball and get out the way. That's not how modern basketball is played. It's just not. I, I don't. This, but I, I. But look, we're not going. We would not see this stat line. Giannis, Embiid, Jokic are not giving us this stat line after a forty-point game if Draymond is on them. That's just not going to happen. And they're not going to show that sort of malaise. And they're not. They're going to look. They're going to do exactly what I said. They're going to look at him and say, "Stop me from scoring." And there's no level of discomfort that's going to make them not want to do that. They're bigger than this guy. Like the like. We were talking about the fundamentals in the NBA. You're bigger than the other guy, and you go and score, or at yeah, least I mean, you put up 35. You put up 30 shots or something. Maybe I'm. Maybe the defense that I'm putting up is is unnecessary and wrong. But like we don't play in the post traditionally in the NBA. So now all of a sudden they're like, "Hey, 
Pull out those post moves that we told you never to use anymore. Hey, who cares about entry passing? Like, it's it, it's not your ball. We're going to find some way to get you the ball, and you have to take over the game without having the ball in your hands until the last second. And while the regular season MVPs have been big men, uh, I don't remember all the recent finals MVPs, but my guess is, I know last year was Steph Curry, my guess is the final MV, finals MVP and playoff performers that we care about are perimeter players. And I'm including Giannis in that conversation because he catches the ball on the perimeter quite a bit and drives. He doesn't set up with his back to the basket the way that we're expecting AD to dominate a smaller player in the post. It's just not something that we see. I'm not saying that we shouldn't do it more often, but we don't see it. And it's weird that out of nowhere, we're like, hey, be Patrick Ewan. <laughs> Well, no, at the elbow, big, at, big the, at the at the elbow, right at the free throw line. And Jokic doesn't dominate from the elbow in that way. Like he's not dominating people because they're smaller than him. I guess because he can see over them and pass. But like Jokic dominates from the elbow because he can pass and because he shoots the same jump shot that AD is shooting. And we're looking at him like, hey, don't shoot that. You got a little man on you. Alabaster agree with me, so clearly I'm right. So <laughs> now Alabaster just knows how to push my <laughs> buttons to make good uh, to make uh good TV, I guess, is what we're doing. Alabaster? Yeah. Anything else on the game? Any how, that's it? Nothing. No, else I got have, the series is gonna go. I have tons of thoughts of the game. I think the Warriors are gonna win the series. I mean, I didn't I, after game one, I didn't feel too concerned about about how they how they were gonna um look against they, the Lakers. I mean, they they that fourth quarter sort of told me a lot. And once they got a little rest, they looked better. The The Lakers, my concern with the Lakers this entire time was the fact that once you have more um, intricate offensive sets against you, that how are they going to adapt? They look fantastic against Memphis Grizzlies team who couldn't shoot, who couldn't, who ran nothing, who just tried to throw the ball at the rim and see yeah. what happens. But when they were getting murdered by simple Draymond, Steph Curry, pick and roll and Draymond, you know, leaking to the basket that they were trying to blitz and double team Steph Curry and they carved them up the entire time. That Lakers defense, it, you know, once the Warriors figure you out and you have to adapt, that's the second level of that D of a defense that makes the defense great. And I have not really, I mean, seen that from the Lakers in terms of the type of competition that they have faced to be able to do that. AD is going to be in the paint. He's going to be blocking as many shots as possible. But when the Warriors start zipping and, and, and running, yeah. like, what are you going to do to actually defend that? And I, and I don't think the Lakers got it. And Clay was good. Clay was hitting shots. That helps. Wiggins was better than he's been. That helps a lot. When you're going to trap Steph or try to force the ball out of his hands, you force it to someone else. It's nice when those someone else's are uh, a Clay that can hit shots and Wiggins that is going to attack the basket and hit shots. This was not a game. I, I think the Lakers still feel good. They got the split, which is normally what you want when you're starting uh, a series on the road. However, in that split, we also learned or were reminded that the Warriors are just better. They're better. It doesn't mean the Lakers can't win, but they're going to need more out of LeBron. They're going to need uh, Vanderbilt not to shoot because, like, he was throwing things at the back backboard. And uh, they, they're going to need Austin Reeves to be the Austin Reeves that we thought that I'm him. Austin Reeves, we need that out of you at this point. If you're going to you make say this it, into say a it, series. Say it. I'm not going to say it. I don't got nothing to you say. say it. I just say you're that. Not, if you're you him, we need him. And I'm just saying, you're not going to call him Kareem, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar? You're not going to see Kareem? You're not going to see Kareem is going to show up at the crypto? Well, he ain't crypto, Kareem some right crypto now. Cream? He ain't, <laughs> he's not. <laughs> he ain't Kareem right now. He was Kareem last round. Right now, he's Austin Reeves. So I'm going to need Kareem Abdul-Jabbar to return. 
All right, Alabaster, give me my check. We earned it. I appreciate that. Anything else? Now nah, we moving on. Transition. Is it time for the transition? I think so. Well, anyway, appreciate you for staying up with me, David Dennis Jr. We are going to time travel and replace you with the great Mina Kimes. Appreciate yeah, we look so much alike anyway. So Yeah, I mean, I had to tell the people because otherwise they'd be confused. Like I know when I had my pandemic hair, it looked like Mina. So I got you. As promised, here is the great Mina Kimes. Don't ask why I seem so much more awake and full of energy and maybe my shirt's a different color. It's just the magic of television. Hey, Mina. Of me being here, maybe? Yeah, that's it. That's it. It just brought a <laughs> smile to my face and energy to my shirt. Well, I appreciate it nonetheless. <laughs> Alabaster. All right. Let's talk about some hoops before we pivot to football. All right. In the Eastern Conference, who should feel better as the series heads to Philly? The Sixers or the Celtics? Well, Joe Mazzulla is feeling pretty good right now. He's feeling salty after everyone told him he can't coach. But hey, what, what about those in-game adjustments, folks? I enjoyed that. But yeah, I don't know. What do you want me to say? I, I can, I've been pretending all playoffs long like I know what's happening in the NBA. And anyone else who's talking about what they like they know what's happening in the NBA, they're all pretending to. We've all been confused by this year's playoffs. So I'm going to go ahead and say Philly. They're going to give the MVP title to Embiid. They're going to be fired up. They got the split, which is what everyone says that they want when they uh, start their series on the road. I think Philly should feel really good about uh, their positioning, despite the fact that the Celtics are just better. Well, I think you hit on why this is like such a hard series to get. This particular series is so hard to get your arms around it because the Celtics are better. Like they're the better basketball team. Like on paper, look at the regular season. Every if you look at the matchups, all of it. Consider the fact, of course, that Embiid is still a little bit banged up. They should win. However, and it's not just Missoula, although he certainly deserves his fair share of criticism after game one. Um, they just lay stinkers. I yeah. hate when analysts give answers that are like they didn't want it enough or they didn't play hard enough on defense. But it's all true with literally that is the ex I mean, I, there's some strategic stuff for sure. But when Boston lays the aforementioned stinkers, it's often because they don't play with like a killer instinct at the end of games or they're not aggressive enough on defense or they let their guard down or they make boneheaded errors and turn over the basketball, which makes our jobs more difficult because I have no idea on any given day which version of the Boston Celtics we're going to get. Yeah, the Celtics defense is the big concern because I think you could look at offensive play and say uh, we just weren't hitting shots or the sets that we were running. They knew all our sets. There are reasons to explain away offense that aren't effort. Guys seem to seem to try hard on that end of the floor. But defense, when you have the pieces, which they have particularly perfectly matched for that that version of the 76ers, when they got wing defender after top tier wing defender, everyone's switchable and they still let James Harden go off on him. It's hard to like have confidence in a team like that that can have mental lapses in moments like that. I don't know. I could understand midseason you're playing a bad team, maybe have a, a momentary lapse. In the playoffs, the first game of the second round yeah. at home against a rival, a team that you play in the playoffs enough that you should have some animosity towards them, you just get whooped. It's it's unexplainable. But then they come back the next game and all of a sudden they're motivated. So I, I think it speaks to the coach. It speaks to the team. The leadership is all the things 
that I get mad at uh, analysts. Well, not analysts. It's mostly just regular people on the street. Their armchair analysis is they didn't want it enough. They weren't playing that hard. And then I watched the games like, damn, come on, guys. <laughs> want it a little harder. Um, I mean, to their credit, and I think when we think about what's going to happen moving forward, they did figure out some stuff between games one and two. Turns out um, Jalen Brown on James Harden makes a lot of sense. <laughs> Turns out you know, more Grant Williams. Very good for this matchup. Clearly, if you're playing Joel Embiid, you want to take a lot of threes, which they did. I think the Sixers could probably hope that they won't be as successful from three in the next game and that they'll get a better version of Embiid as he gets healthier. Um, but, you know, I would say unless those things happen, I do lean Boston because, again, on like a pure roster versus roster basis, if they're actually trying and they're well coached, they are the better basketball team. Yeah, roster versus roster, playoff experience. They've gone deep, it feels like, just about every year uh, that they had uh, Tatum. Um, they were in a championship last year. You would think that that uh, – it feels a little bit like the Bucks in that, hey, but we, you were one of the teams that we knew were comfortable here, that we knew would be okay in these situations. And for whatever reason, they haven't been up until this point. But going against the 76ers, which is a team that's – that has uh, a couple of players, at least their two best players, are not players that have had deep runs in the playoffs or have a history of clutch playoff performances. So I think you're right to lean Celtics based on what we've known of them so far, but we don't know anything about anybody this year. I don't know. Luckily, I don't have to bet on these games to support my family because I will be broke. Who do you think is the best team left in the playoffs? I want to say the Nuggets, but also the Nuggets have played two pretty uh, incomplete teams so far. As much as we wanted to make the Suns a thing, the Suns struggled against the Clippers, who didn't have either of their big two. The Suns' bench is atrocious. It's hard for me to to knock the Nuggets because they've been really good in the regular season and in the postseason, but it's also hard for me to be like, hey, you guys are awesome because who have they really played yet? I know we thought the Suns were going to be, but the Suns haven't been that. But who is good? Who are they going to play? Exactly. That's such a great exactly. challenge. I that's, think that's the that's issue fair. with this postseason. Um, that is fair. Yeah, I also would go with the Nuggets, and I think if this plays out the way we've just been discussing, the Nuggets beat the Suns, which seems fairly likely, and let's say Boston pulls this off and Philly gets bounced. Are we going to revisit the MVP discourse? Like, how, how much pressure is there? I mean, it, the, the, the logical thing to do is to say, hey, in the same way that we were wrong to pin the Nuggets playoff struggles on Jokic at all or to uh, attribute any of – or I say that any of that should tarnish right. his previous MVPs, we would also be wrong to do it for Embiid. Exactly. Let's, like, yeah. be, you know, circumspect and – take the correct vantage point on all of this, but something tells me that we won't do that. And we'll just get a bunch of segments with people saying it should have been Jokic. <laughs> we got to fill, got, <laughs> fill this time somehow, Mina. But yeah, I, I mean, you can explain away Embiid's struggles. Yeah. It's like with injury and, and rosters not quite matching up. Uh, and the same him. thing. Yeah. The same thing with Jokic's struggle. Yeah, that's fair. Same thing with Jokic's struggles in the playoffs in previous seasons is, his roster wasn't up to par. So I don't know. It's a regular season award. I think it's fair that Embiid got it for this regular season. And maybe Jokic will get the finals MVP, which I think everybody will want more anyway. Nobody remembers the finals MVP. 
I mean, the point is he'd rather win a championship. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Steph won in a finals MVP. Can, I can't even, I don't know. <laughs> get into naming the last five finals MVPs. Yeah, I can't. I have no idea. I mean, I, I, if I could name the last finals Steph. winners, I could name the last Giannis. finals MVPs. Yeah. It's either Steph or Giannis. He's always a safe guess. Steph's replacing LeBron on Mount Rushmore basketball. You heard that awful take that Stephen A was floating. I love the arbitrary distinction of a Mount Rushmore because five is too much. But if we get it down to four <laughs> is when the debates get really, really tricky. Oh, gosh. All right, Alabaster. Tell us, take us to something that we can predict a lot better than the NBA playoffs. Sorry. Okay, we're going to we're going to move to football, although I could name the last finals MVPs, five finals MVPs, but I digress. Um, the, N- the NFL no draft just happened, um, and that's interesting because it doesn't seem like a lot of guys who are drafted a few years ago are getting s- extended. So my question to you all, are NFL teams getting worse at drafting? Uh, I mean, sure, or getting worse, getting better. I, I don't know. I think understanding the way to draft is a constantly evolving process. They're like... Because if you're looking for an advantage, you can't do what everyone else is doing. But also, if you're doing what everything, everyone else is doing, then you're probably not going to get mocked. And there are a lot of people, not mock draft, but like made fun of. And there are a lot of people getting mocked right now. And I'm on the mocking side of these, or not people, but teams, because they're making foolish picks. But I guess if they're going to end up with a high percentage of these players becoming, I guess, bust, or at least not getting the fifth-year option or getting extensions, then taking a risk at the positions that some of these teams are taking risks at, I guess you can argue that that makes a little sense. And maybe if you get a guy who fits your system and make, frankly, I'm talking about the lions, the lions stress me out. <laughs> they really stress well, me out. I was talk, saying a lot of words, the lions and the Falcons is what we're talking about here. Right? Yeah. I mean, well, they're actually, I'd also, we're also, I'd argue we're also talking about the Texans and here's why. Uh, so the reason uh, we're ta- uh, Alabaster brought up the lack of success that teams have had in drafting uh, comes off of the revelation, recent revelation that uh, from the 2020 draft class, only 12 of, I assume 32, unless somebody lost a pick, 32 fifth year options, meaning for those who don't know, Your first round, one of the benefits of drafting a guy in the first round is before you even franchise tag him, there's also this thing called the fifth year option, which is based on where he's drafted. So it's kind of like a pre-franchise tag, franchise tag. It's another reason why things are heavily stacked against players and getting paid. Uh, It's a set salary. So, and it's a lot of money for, you know, basically saying that this first round pick was really good and we're happy to lock him in at like, I don't know, $15 million or whatever. So that number 12, is the lowest number of fifth year options that have been picked up since it was created in 2011 with that CBA. So um, the implication is like, wow, these teams really had a bad draft because they didn't find guys that they wanted to, you know, suppress their salaries and keep them on their teams. Um, You know, you could say, well, maybe this is an aberration. Maybe it was a bad draft. I don't have the class in front of me, but it's, it's a lot of, it's a lot of bad picks, right? Maybe that was just a one-off thing. We'll see what happens next year. But I, I think it, it what it illustrates, Dominique, is when it comes to the draft, we only know two things. And this is what brings us to the teams that we've been criticizing. We know that positional value matters because that's regardless of, you know, it's a crapshoot, sure. But if you get 
we know that if you do succeed at this position, you can save a lot of money if you find a quarterback or an edge rusher or whatever relative to a running back or a linebacker, which is what the Lions took. That's real, no matter what. So you already have an advantage if you take one of those positions, if it works out. And then the other thing we know is that it's good to have a lot of draft picks because teams, it, it is a crapshoot. And yes, people get mad. It feels like we always just praise trading down, you know, and it feel it's like, come on, like it's not always good to trade down. Well, it kind of freaking is, frankly, because <laughs> the one thing we know about the draft is that we don't know a lot about the draft and it's better to have a lot of shots on goal. And that's why when we talked about it on my podcast this week, I picked the Arizona Cardinals as one of the biggest winners of the draft. Um, it's ego is what it comes down to. And nobody gets into the draft to move down and draft players whose names we don't know. You get into the draft or you get into like talent evaluation and you get into front office work to work your way up to the GM so that you can make the call to draft the guy as with the big name to be the future Hall of Famer. And you think you spend, you have a big staff, you spend a lot of time watching film and, uh, and evaluating them mentally, evaluating physically, looking at their injury reports. You do all that so that you can think or believe that somehow you know better than everyone else. And the fact of the matter is you don't, in part because you can't evaluate better than like the, the argument or the idea is that you have a better eye than everyone else. No, someone has a better eye than you. And then there's a whole bunch of other variables that go into whether someone succeeds or fails. And so the more <laughs> shots you have, the better off you're gonna be. And of course, every now and then, there are these singular guys where you can't miss, but some of those guys miss too. Um, I did wanna talk about the fifth year option a little bit because it was originated in the CBA that I was a part of negotiating, but that was a big fight about bringing down the cost of first round picks because they were committing to guys who were bust, yeah. big amount of money. Sam and, Yeah, there was a lot of guys like that. And sadly for uh, Cam Newton, it happened just before his yeah. draft, but they were committing a whole lot of money to these players, which was also since it's a cap sport, taking money out of the salary cap going to other veteran players. So shorten the contracts, shrink the contracts, we got it down to, to five years and we're able to negotiate for the fifth year to be an option with a, a major boost, which it's still suppressive on the players' wages, but it's uh, it's working the way it's supposed to work because it forces players into free agency or it forces teams to make a commitment. It's also suppressive on stars, which I think sometimes when we talk about contracts and CBAs and who got screwed, we're always just like, well, like it's this the first round draft pick should have been able to yeah, he should make more, but the money that the team saved by not paying him is supposed to be going to veterans and middle-class NFL players. Right. That was the purpose of this. It's The salary cap is a zero-sum game, and I think people tend to forget that because it just isn't as – like, you know, when you think about we, – we look at the tags and we look at the, t the option. We don't consider the total pool being – am I being boring? <laughs> you know I mean? like, Probably, I mean, but I love it. I, I mean, it's, it. A bo it's boring. That's why it's not as fun as saying yeah. the union sucks. It's so bad. Um, but, yeah, it's – Ego, it's, I saw a quote from Brad Holmes. I'm going to actually read it because I think it's really interesting because we, you and I talked about the Lions draft quite a bit. And on your podcast, the Mina Kime Show. Mina Kime Show featuring Lenny. Lenny. Check it out. Okay. And Lamar. He said, you got to battle the whole thing of people having minimal information versus people having all the information, which is us. And it's tough for the fans because they have to go off of the information they see people putting together these mock drafts. Well, we've been grinding it for the past nine months. When you put cognitive strain in a project, i.e. mock drafts or forecasts, when the desired result isn't what you want, your brain's not going to like it. Da, 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 da. It literally is very long. It's a very long way of saying we didn't care about positional value and we think we know more than you. Yeah. 
That's, that's it. It's, uh, and you know what? The Seahawks were like this for 10 years, and they had yeah. 10 years of bad drafts. Yeah. Like after yeah. Russell Wilson, and then they and and last year they took the guys that every they took Charles Cross. Everybody thought they were going to take Charles, you know. I mean, like in the first round, and guess what? It worked out. It was a great draft pick, you know. It's just, um, yeah. Like you're just you don't know. Like it, you usually don't know more. The Seahawks, by the way, in this year's draft, traded out of the third round altogether with Denver, which I can't believe Denver's still doing trades with Seattle, by the way. And they got a fourth <laughs> rounder and then a future third. And as a Seahawks fan, that's not fun. You want to watch your team pick in the third round, but that's insane value to get. It's basically a fourth rounder for nothing for the delayed pain of waiting a year. And the reason that they're able to do it is because John Shire's not going anywhere. And I think that's another thing we underestimate all of this, which is a lot of these GMs are just saving, making decisions to save their jobs. Moral hazard is <laughs> yeah, like, and this can get us to the um, Houston Texans draft and a lot of, uh, I guess the Lions, you could look at this also the same way where the Lions clearly had what they believed to be holes on their roster that they wanted to fit. They wanted to fill with the best players they could possibly fill. These players are at low value positions and might've been there later. But if you're concerned about maximizing, I guess the, the way that you look right now or maximizing your championship window that might determine the decision that you make, which is moral hazard. And the ultimate culprit of moral hazard is the Houston Texans and the decision that they made to trade away a very valuable or several very valuable picks so that they could move up and draft Will Anderson after they already got the quarterback, CJ Stroud. And even if Will Anderson turns out to be an incredible pass rusher they still you talk you think about the opportunity cost what they give up they gave up they move uh in that, they that traded draft. 12 33 and a future first and a future first from them who stink <laughs> to into a draft that is loaded next year at least with big name quarterbacks so the value is just absurd but if you are concerned about your job security Getting these guys in right now could potentially help you. It, you it so really disgusting. is like that, <laughs> it really is a reflection of whether front offices are thinking both short term and long term or just short term. Shoot, I don't know if the Arizona Cardinals would have done that if Steve Kime was the, still the general manager, but they nope. moved on. New guy comes in with a mandate. You got a long runway, and that's how you yeah. get great trades like the one that they just pulled off. I mean, the ego to make some of these um, decisions that are against uh, the common knowledge is is it's a lot. You're putting a lot on uh, it working out and you seeming smart because this is going to hang over all of these franchises that make these outlandish decisions. It's going to hang over them if they don't have success. And it's going to end up being the the piece that's written in the local paper if people still do that that motivates them to get fired they're like remember when we could have had this guy there's nothing more embarrassing than so, what the the bears were going through where they're like hey you could have had i'll tell you Patrick what though Mahomes. i i think the lions are going to win the division i wouldn't be surprised yeah. if both uh Holmes and campbell get big contract extensions because of it so well played my friend <laughs> y'all want a super bowl i want a new deal I want to win a division for the first time in forever. Yeah, that's they don't want a Super Bowl. They just want to get into the playoffs, man. <laughs> Atlanta, same way. Yeah, we're so cranky. Let's talk about Jordan are. Love. That'll make us happy.
Yeah, speaking of Jordan Love, this sort of dovetails off of yeah. the contract conversation. What do you make of Jordan Love's extension with the Packers? All right, you got the details yeah, of the, the extensions because they're um, really Alabaster. relevant to this. Yeah, because the fifth year, this is the fifth year option. Uh, was twenty five? What was the fifth year option for Jordan Love? It was around twenty five million. Something what like, would have been? Yeah, something like that. Yeah. Uh, so he signed an extension that pretty much takes the fifth year op- option and spreads it across two seasons. It takes pressure off of um, the Packers financially, and it takes pressure off of him, I guess, is the argument that is taking pressure off of him to have to perform uh, well enough this year. But this reminds me of the Daniel Jones situation where I, if I'm Jordan Love, I might just say, uh, give me this fifth year option and let me go play and then we'll see what happens from from there. But I mean, I get the I get the rationale from both sides. I wouldn't have done it, but so I understand it. Here's like a further breakdown from Field. His salary in 2023 has a, a nine million dollar signing bonus. It's one million dollars, and there's escalators of up to nine million dollars. So basically, this year he has condition escalators in which he could make as much as Baker Mayfield, basically, right? Um, and then his 2024 salary is five and a half million dollars fully guaranteed. So it's, you know, you add up the five and a half and the $9 million. Um, he really bet against himself, man, because, um, (laughs) yeah, I, I, I thought they were going to pick up, like, this is a franchise that said, we are moving on from Aaron Rodgers. We are. Yes. Jordan Love is our quarterback. I would have been shocked if they didn't pick up his fifth year option. And once they didn't, to your point about Daniel Jones, yes, there was potential for Jordan Love to not make, you know, about 10, 13 million dollars or whatever. But there was also potential for him to make a ton of money and he turned it down. Like if Jordan Love played really well this year, he would have been Mm -hmm. in line for such a massive payday relative to this. Heck, if he played fine, yeah, I feel like say. he would have made more to, than that's, this. That's why I pointed to Daniel Jones. Yeah. Because Daniel Jones play, played fine. And he probably, if he would have played fine, he'd have had more negotiating leverage and more value in the marketplace than Daniel Jones. Because he would have said, I mean, y'all got like no film on me. This year I showed you potential. I can grow from this. Give me back the Brinks truck up or at least hit me with the franchise tag or I'm going somewhere else. So it was definitely a bet against himself, but the way that he, I would assume the rationale he has is that this expands his time. There won't be as much pressure. Maybe he's concerned yeah. to get about betting against himself. And this puts him in a situation where, uh, and the, the, um, their salary cap is still kind of tied up in paying nice. Aaron Rodgers. So maybe that's the argument for it is like to give them more relief on the salary cap, to give me more time, to give them more time to build a roster around me. I'm with you though. Like I, I would have took that big check and we'd have figured it out from there. Even if he had a bad year this year, he would have had value. Like you just mentioned Baker Mayfield out here still getting jobs. You could have got this deal next year, but. I wonder if he feels like indebted to the organization because it, not only was it a crazy draft pick in the first place but then the fact that they ultimately did move on i don't know i, I my big takeaway is that brian gutekunst is very good at his job 
I yeah. think he's one of the best GMs in the yeah, NFL because this is an extraordinarily team-friendly deal. Like they could be getting such a bargain, and they've limited their risk so much by doing this. And he's repeatedly built really good rosters around Aaron Rodgers. It's not like uh, yeah. he was failing Aaron Rodgers as much as we like to tell that story of the first-round quarterback and first-round receivers. They have had loaded defenses and good offensive lines. They haven't had ultimate success, but it doesn't feel like it's on Lil Goody. Just to spin it to the football, like obviously we don't know what Jordan Love's going to look like. We've barely seen him play. Year one, didn't look great. Year two, comes in relief in the Philadelphia game. Looks awesome for, you know, like 13 passes or whatever he threw. Uh, we infer that they he, he can't be that bad if they're willing to actually make this move. And so there's something they're seeing internally. But I also think he's in a really good position. I mean, I like look at this. I, I understand that, you know, the Packers fulfilled their annual commitment of not taking a pass catcher in the first round. But it's still a very good offensive line, a very good run game. I think that the tight ends they got are going to be extremely useful. I think Watson and Dobbs could take a big leap. Uh, so, yeah. like, there's a lot of potential for Jordan Love to look pretty good this year. Yep, which is why he shouldn't have signed this deal. But, I mean, I guess maybe this is the long-term play for him as he he's at a place at an organization that he thinks with a general manager that he thinks can build a good team around him and what gives him the best chance to succeed and gives them the best chance to succeed long-term is making this. It's, it's a hell of a bet on the organization and it's a lot of trust that you put in an organization and my time uh, in players unions, I mean, my time in life suggests that you should not trust the organization, but Hey, joy and love. This might be the exception. <laughs> we get a check we get a check so we can uh go watch these games that have already happened but we haven't watched yet but uh i don't know uh, where you are in results. your facetime continuing uh we're we're taping after the game tonight this is the, the so. your different like timelines that the way you do this show are very it's like a multiverse series i don't really get it we are the multiverse